Would you turn with me again in your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter, now chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I actually made a page turn in my Bible since we planted the church. So. First Peter chapter 4. Today we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 4. As Peter will be continuing a context from chapter 3. And I'll get into that a little bit as we address the text. First Peter chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let's pray now. Father, we admit to you as we do each week that we are a hungry people in need of the food that only you can provide. We are a people who cannot be fed by merely bread alone, but the eternal persons who we are becoming must be fed by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we pray that you would do that this morning, that you would feed us from this manna that sits in our laps that came down from heaven from your very own mouth. Please give me strength as I preach to reveal to your people what is your will and for them to receive it, applying it to their lives so that they might become the people that you've called them to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week, church, how many Christians can come to a text of Scripture with firm convictions about what the text means. Perhaps those convictions are even right convictions. And still completely emasculate a text. I may have mentioned this last week, but I heard a pastor preach one time from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's from Matthew 5, verse 48. This pastor started his message by saying that he has never heard a pastor preach what Jesus actually teaches in the text, but rather the opposite. You can understand why we come to texts like these and we see what Jesus or one of the apostles says and we make excuses. We can't be perfect in this life. That can't be what Jesus meant. And this is often how the dark magic is performed in our hearts. Even from a pulpit, a preacher gives with one hand the words of Christ and then takes away with the other hand the power of those words to change the human heart. We say that we want to be faithful to the whole counsel of God, but how often is it that the vice of tolerance makes excuses for our own sins? 
We do have another challenging text in front of us today. And it's also a text that is a means of mortification of your sin. It's right here in front of us. After reading today's text, the question we are most likely to ask of Peter is, can we really? I'm going to encourage you to ask, how do we? How do we? Don't look at the text and disbelieve, but believe. Even if you are here today saying, Jesus, I heard what Chris just read, and I believe, but you're going to have to help my unbelief. I would say if you're in that place, you're at least headed in the right direction. Because as always, everything in the Christian life begins with Christ. Well, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Notice his first phrase, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Having grounded potential providential sufferings in this life, in the person and work of Christ, Peter makes a turn in today's text to speak about the mortification of our sin. He grounds this in the sufferings of Jesus. So far he has said as much as to say, you will not lose your reward because look at Christ, look at his example. Our reward is as secure as Christ's reward was. And then he goes on to say, look, there are other rewards that come from committing to and suffering in following Jesus. His suffering is the foundation for your sanctification insofar as His pattern of life becomes yours. Well, the Bible calls us in Ephesians chapter 4 to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. How are we to do this? If you can get to the end of today's sermon and you are considering all of the things that you need to do without considering what has already been done for you in the person and work of Christ, you are missing Peter's point entirely. That's why he begins right here with the sufferings of Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He is the true vine and we are his branches. So what life do we bring to the world apart from Christ? You know that we bring none. Let me give an example. Men, you come home from a miserable day at work. You were late clocking in that morning because your car was making some strange noises that may need your attention soon. And work was stressful and you took no joy in it. You came home that evening with children asking you to read them a story or to discuss a homeschooling issue which irritated you and you were short with them. And you ought to be anyway because they left their toys in the yard last night and it rained and you held a grudge against them and you haven't dealt with that yet. Your wife is having a hard time keeping the house moving forward on all cylinders since she is in her first trimester and you walked right past her when you walked in the door and you didn't say very much. You didn't want to let her, let her have it, did you? And tonight is date night and, oh yeah, you forgot to plan anything. Now, how does Christ ground you, liberate you, strengthen and establish you in moments like these? 
Let me ask the question a different way. How does a Christian abide in Jesus Christ? How does a Christian abide in Jesus Christ? That's essentially what Peter is doing here. He's teaching you to abide in Christ. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, think back to Christ. Go back to Christ. Always looking to Christ. Always setting your eyes on His example. Jesus, in John 15, gives us the example of a vine and branches. How does that work? What is the relationship between the vine and the branches? I'll describe it three ways. It's a place, a time, and a way. A place, a time, and a way. Let me speak to place. Vines and branches go together. Engines and gasoline go together. It would be disastrous to mix up those pairs. Trying to get life in other places will never satisfy the Christian soul. The Christian must have Christ. His place is with Christ. He must spend time with Christ. Abiding requires devoted moments. If you were to take a freshly cut branch and hold it to the vine for only a few minutes, as people do when they're grafting vines and branches, your hope for its survival would be in vain because as soon as you pull it back apart, there's no chance of it receiving that life-giving sap. Just as time is one of the most important ingredients in vine dressing and also in a marriage, so it is in the Christian's walk with Christ. Lastly, we are to be with Christ in a certain place for a certain time and in a certain way. There is a certain kind of state that the vine and the branch must coexist together in. And it only works one way. The sap is what both need to survive, but the branch is not responsible. In fact, it's completely incapable of collecting and passing sap to the vine. The life in us comes from Christ. It does not come the other way around. Now, how does this help the hard day husband? He goes off to the bedroom to try and get his act together and salvage some of the wreckage of the day. Of what good is it to him in that moment to consider his love and his devotion for Christ, his good deeds, his benevolent acts? None. That is most probably what Satan is going to tempt him to think about, but it won't help him. Instead, what if he were to consider the very real ongoing and objective love that Christ showed for him on Calvary. Since Christ also suffered in the flesh. You see where it comes from. I can say that, and I know that there are many here who may have just thought how trivial it is in those moments to try and look to Christ. Here we go again with that looking to Jesus stuff. This never works. I'm not even going to try it. It's usually a waste of time. Beloved, we have trivialized Christ and His work in the West, but it is by no means a trivial work He accomplished. It is the power of God for salvation. It is the grounds of our hope. It is this Christ whom Satan will tell you ten ways to Sunday to keep your eyes off of. 
You've got better things to do. Go, talk to your wife and kids. Muscle through the evening. Make up excuse. Explain how hard the day was. Just don't look to Jesus. I call abiding in Christ a constant vital connection. Constant vital connection. I heard another pastor call it a desperate dependency on Christ. I ask you, beloved, is your relationship with Christ an ongoing vital connection? Is it a desperate dependency on the one for whom you depend for all of your life, your source of hope? If you're going to make a break with sin, the break with sin that Peter today is going to argue that we can make, you're going to have to abide in Christ. Now, I mentioned how looking to your own good deeds will not be helpful to you in those moments when you failed. You will need to look to Christ. But keeping that connection going does require devotion. It does require commitment. That time is to be spent in the means of grace that God has given us. The corporate means of grace that God has given us is this experience that we have every Sunday morning where we worship the Lord Jesus together, where we lift our voices to Him, where we worship Him as we listen to the sermon, where we commune together and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Those are the corporate means of grace, but there are also individual means of grace. And I would encourage you to ask yourself, how are you doing with your scripture reading, with pursuing Christ devotionally in His Word, and also meditating on that word? Do you pray regularly seeking the Lord? Do you worship Him privately and also practice evangelism throughout the week as opportunities present themselves? Do you practice service in your home and outside of your home? Do you practice what Jesus Christ expected that His disciples would practice, a regular fast? Do you practice periods of solitude where you would spend time alone as Christ did, connecting with His Father, so on and so forth. These individual means of grace are the means that we use to continue that relationship with Jesus, to abide in Christ. I would encourage you to consider as we look towards what Peter is going to encourage us today, making a clean break with sin. Are you abiding in Jesus? Well, he goes on to say that we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. He follows this reflection on Christ with a call to mental fortitude. He says to arm yourself, which you can hear in that military language. It's used frequently in the New Testament. I'll give you some examples. Romans 13 verse 12. Paul says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In 2 Corinthians 6-7, Paul says, The apostles commend themselves by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And then a little later on in chapter 10, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
But the question is going to come, what kind of thinking are we to arm ourselves with? What are we to think like Jesus about? Well, just this. Jesus' death made peace between you and God. But you are now at war with the rest of the world. You didn't get saved by a cruise ship. You got pulled out of the waters of judgment and put on a battleship. Jesus says in John 15, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Christ was fully convinced that it is better to do right and suffer for it than to do wrong. Of course, this is not to say that we should go looking for suffering. Peter does not command that, nor do any of the other writers of the Bible, including the Lord Jesus. But we are to arm ourselves to be ready to suffer. Ask yourselves this, beloved. When you hear Christ call you to suffer for righteousness and His kingdom, do you get excited or do you get fearful? Does this seem to you like equipping you for the war or taking away your hopes of happiness in this life? Does your resolution to follow Jesus, no matter the cost, give or does it take away from your joy? Peter is trying to give us something here. And I think that his purpose in the text is to give us this truth. Resolved Christianity is weaponized Christianity. Resolved Christianity is weaponized Christianity. The gatekeepers of the great mission to overthrow the reign of Christ can't do jack squat to a covenant-keeping bride who is willing to give up anything to protect her husband's honor. She won't flirt. She can't be teased into infidelity. She's awesome as an army with banners. Song of Solomon 6.10 You know what you can, do you know what you can do to the bride of Christ right now? You can take our homes. You can take our kids, and that might be over our dead bodies. You can fire us from our jobs. You can cause inflation to balloon so that our money is worth nothing. You can close our churches because of pandemics. You can try and make us be vaccinated. You can lock us out of countries where the gospel must be preached. But a faithful church of Christ will not be moved. It's that brave heart moment. You can take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom. What they need, what the world needs, what the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age needs, are Christians acting like cattle. You can push around a herd of senseless cattle. And this is the main mission behind government education. Public schools are essentially barnyards creating human livestock, easily manipulated to the will of the powers that be. Public schools don't pump out faithful, radically faithful, radically faithful and obedient disciples of Christ, but harlots who pay the state to be molested and manipulated. Let me give you a brief point of application. Matthew Henry said, the beginning of all true mortification of sin lies in the mind, not in penances and hardships on the body. We are going to get to how we are to suffer in the flesh, but it begins in the mind. Have you made up your mind to suffer for Jesus? 
Are you armed and dangerous to the world in that you can no longer be tempted by the desires of the eyes and the pride of life? There are so many conservative Christians who would never leave their homes without being armed. People have a gun in their nightstand, on top of their kitchen cabinet, in the glove box of the car, on their hip all day long. It's a joke in the South to say, I own a gun. And people laugh. <laughs> you own a gun? When's the last time someone shouted, excuse me, when's the last time someone shouted Jesus Christ as an expletive and you told them to watch their mouth? I couldn't, Chris. It was my boss. Or it was that family member that we're trying to get close to so that we can evangelize. Do you know why most men would say that Braveheart is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest guy films of all time? It's because a man was created to stand and fight for what he believes in. Because real men are resolved men. I ask you, church, have you compromised? I call on you this day, if you have, to repent and seek God's forgiveness. For the men here, we've said before and I say again, men need a gang. We need a band of brothers. We need accountability of those who will hold us to the fires that Christ is sure to bring us to and through. But we need that accountability in a brotherhood. Find those men who will keep you accountable and strengthen yourself and your resolve and your commitment to Christ. Well, Peter goes on to say, almost as a clause of encouragement, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For those of you who were concerned that after the last two weeks we were all out of difficult text, well, this one's for you. Here we go. Cheers. If you've taken too many um, eisegesis pills in a day, you may read this phrase and conclude that when you shed blood for Jesus, you will miraculously stop sinning. Wouldn't that be nice? Sign me up. Let's hire a beatdown so we can all be done with our sin. It's fairly common knowledge, however, that those who give a pound of flesh for the Lord still have several pounds of their own flesh left to deal with. We read in the catechism this morning, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer, No mere man since the fall is able in his life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And John, in his first epistle, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Peter isn't speaking of reaching a state of sinless perfectionism, but, beloved, don't miss what he is saying. What he, his, what he is saying is a boon to your efforts to mortify your sin. I'm going to give you three different explanations of what this verse likely means. And I think all are rational possibilities. I think all are within the bounds of orthodoxy. You could look at all of these views, hold any one of them, and I think still be in the right and not fall off the rails with this text. 
The first of these three views I'll call the freedom of Christ view. The freedom of Christ view. This view takes the one who has suffered in the flesh as being Christ himself. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For Christ, when he suffered in the flesh, ceased from sin. That's essentially the logic behind this view. We know that we cannot cease from sin, so Peter must be referring here to the Lord and how his suffering led to a glorified state where there is no more sin to wrestle with. Now, you're likely thinking of the same objection that I am. Chris, Jesus never sinned to begin with. How can he thus be free from sin? Well, listen to the way that Paul describes sin in Christ's life and death in Romans chapter 6. We know that Christ, he says, being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the death of Christ, there was a dying to sin that brought liberation, that brought freedom. Did Christ die in that way in 1 Peter chapter 4? Verse 1, is Peter describing the same reality that Christ experienced here in Romans 6, verse 9? We know that Christ never sinned, yet His entire life He had to fight with temptations to sin. At the cross, however, the power of sin was completely broken, and sin, after Jesus' resurrection, doesn't even have the power to tempt Him anymore. He's, quote-unquote, finished with sin. How is that an encouragement to Peter's church? Well, Paul, just a few verses later in Romans 6, says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Christ has transitioned to a new reality. Therefore, be encouraged, readers of Peter's context. Paul has said, that you will also be transitioned to a new reality and so you can be encouraged to have victory over your sin. Well, I still see too many problems with this view personally to hold it myself. I think the main problem with this view is that the sentence in Greek and also in English is almost assuredly talking about the believers who suffer in the flesh, not Christ. So, on to view number two, the liberation from sin view. The liberation from sin view. Those who suffer in the flesh refers to Christians and they cease to sin similarly to the way that Paul describes ceasing from sin in Romans 6 verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That sounds perfectly reasonable. Um, the one who has died has been set free from sin. Essentially, Peter is speaking of the same dominion change as Paul. When you suffer or die with Christ, you move from the realm of sin's dominion to the reality of the Spirit's dominion. In this way, a believer can cease from sin, but at the same time not be sinless. This was the view held by John Calvin and he explains it this way. 
For both Peter and Paul intimate that when we become dead to the flesh, we have no more to do with sin, that it should reign no more in us and exercise its power no more in our lives. Well, I do have some problems with this view as well. First, Paul speaks of sin, the Greek word hamartia, as a power or force, a diminutive agent. Do not present your members to sin. Sin is personified almost as a ruler, as someone, a slave master in Romans chapter 6 and all throughout Romans. While Peter speaks of sin primarily in terms of individual acts. He'll say it later on in this chapter, in chapter 4. Love covers a multitude of sins. You see little individual moments where the Christian chose to disobey Christ. So there's a difference in the context from Peter and Paul. Second, and I've mentioned this in the last few weeks, that Peter's use of the word suffering does not refer to death, but to physical trials. Peter does not speak of our death with Christ, but encourages his church to prepare for suffering just as Christ had to. Well, I think the most likely view is what I'll call view number three or the skin in the game view. The skin in the game view. The Christians resolve and follow through to suffer for righteousness is evidence and a means to a clean break with sin. The term skin in the game refers to having a personal investment. It's usually a monetary investment in some endeavor which shows and also maintains an individual's higher level of commitment. This is the line in the sand moment. This is the change of thinking, the ain't nobody got time for that moment. The Christian Standard Bible has a helpful reading, and I think that they're close to Peter's intention here. It reads this way, Because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished. With sin. And the Greek word can mean the same thing ceased or finished. And when we hear finished, we hear a resolution there, which fits perfectly with what Peter said arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since we have that military context, think of this in terms of what Paul said to Timothy in his second epistle No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Let me give you a real life example. One of the most famous soldiers in Marine Corps history has to be a man by the name of Lewis B. Puller. He's affectionately known as Chesty Puller. That nickname is likely a reference to his perfect posture. Many saying that his Posture resembled, uh, his chest itself resembled a full-size beer keg, which was full of lead brick, raw muscle, and horse steroids. (laughs) Interesting. While others said that his chest had been blown off in battle and was replaced with a steel plate. Either way, he served in the Marine Corps from 1919 to 1955, putting his life on the line in three major U.S. military campaigns. By the time of the Korean War, he was a commander of the 1st Marine Regiment and having set up camp near Chosen Reservoir in the Korean Peninsula, 
searching for the enemy, Puller and his men found out that they were surrounded by the Chinese People's Liberation Army. The frightened journalists who came to document the campaign begged Puller for his plan of action. And his reply is now famous. Puller said, We've been looking for the enemy for several days now. We're surrounded. That simplifies our problem of finding these people and killing them. (laughs) Surrounded, pinned down, suffering imminent. And yet fortitude, resolve, and courage. I'm a soldier. This is my job. I put my hand to the plow and I won't look back. Why? Because I've got skin in the game. Back to my definition of evidence and a means to a clean break with sin. Suffering for Christ does have a sanctifying effect on our lives. I'm not talking about a second experience of grace. I'm not talking about a moment where you're filled with the Holy Spirit all over again and because I shed a little blood for Jesus, now I've entered this state of sinless perfection. But Wayne Grudem describes it this way. He says, following through with a decision to obey God, even when it will mean physical suffering, has a morally strengthening effect on our lives. It commits us more firmly than ever before to a pattern of action where obedience is even more important than our willingness and desire to avoid pain. I think he's right. Jesus said it this way, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life not be willing to suffer, not go to the mat, not put his life on the line, not put skin in the game, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Beloved, you are saved by the works of Christ alone. You are saved by the grace of God alone, through your faith in Christ alone. But God didn't save you to leave you alone. God saved you to make you like His Son. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Jesus Christ did not just die to make dead men alive, but to make bad men good men. I call on the men here today to repent of cowardice, to repent of effeminacy, of softness. Eric Kahn says that soft men live in fellowship with adorn themselves with, and are surrounded all around by softness. Their environment, their friends, they're soft, and so it seeps into their bones. Soft men speak harsh words that stir up anger in those around them, while hard men know how to speak a soft answer that turns away wrath. I ask the men here, which are you? Repent. And resolve to suffer for righteousness. Remember, repentance is not an explanation. Repentance is not an explanation. It is an admittance of one sin and a forsaking of that sin. You know, often we go to our children when we've wronged them and we say, Well, you don't understand. Mommy was dot, dot, dot. Or Daddy just had a bad day, dot, dot, dot. Repentance is not an explanation. 
It's just coming right out and telling that child or that wife or that husband or whoever, I was wrong. What I said was completely inappropriate. God did not smile on it. I am sorry. Please forgive me. That's repentance. And those who repent in that way find mercy. Women, I encourage you this morning, repent of your excuses for your sin. God has given you insight and understanding into the schemes of the devil, into the spirit of the age, into the signs of the times. I've even seen women here brave enough at times to laugh at the foolishness of the world. But when it comes to your sin, women, do you pick up the banner of tolerance and explain it away? Do you defend it? No, sisters, no, hate it. Hate it. No one tries to run defense for cancer. Resolve that in your hours of trial. You will suffer in the providence of God and will not allow sin in your camp, not in you, not in your children. Beloved, we live in a day and an age where we don't have to suffer for Christ nearly as much as people have in the past or perhaps as others around us in the world. But if we are not willing to suffer in fights against our own sin in our own homes, what hope do we have of suffering for Christ when one day the world does potentially come at us and begin to make demands on us? I too am excited about what many have called this post-millennial hope, this hope that the gospel will be victorious at the end of time, the hope that one day Jesus will come back to see a world where the gospel has seen victory after victory after victory and there will be Christian after Christian after Christian on every corner where Jesus will come back to a world where the leaven will have made its way all the way through the lump and He will return to inherit a kingdom. But that has to begin in our own individual hearts. It has to begin in each of us. What is the purpose for us to think like Christ? Peter goes on to give us the purpose. He says, So as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Allow me to summarize what Peter has said thus far. Since Christ suffered in His mortal body, Christians should resolve to think the same way. After all, the one who suffers for Christ doesn't have time for sin anymore. He's finished living that life. If I may again paraphrase what Peter's going to say in verse 2, Christians who resolve to live to the hilt as Christ did and stick their necks out for Jesus are the kind of Christians who will live out their days pursuing God's will rather than earthly desires. We'll look at that phrase, the remaining time in the flesh. Beloved, do you realize that you have a limited amount of time left? Perhaps you see the victory and Christ's return being centuries, perhaps millennia in the future, but your days are numbered. We are taught by God in His Word to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. When Jesus said that we should not fear tomorrow, He did not intend that we would never consider tomorrow. Would you consider setting aside some time this afternoon or in the next day or two while you are abiding with Christ in the Word and meditation and prayer to consider how many days that you have left on earth? Insurance companies say that the average life expectancy for women in the United States 
is about 81 years old. And for men, it's about 77. The global average is about seven years lower overall. How many years do you have left based on that average? How many years do you have left until your kids will likely leave home? How many until your strength starts to give up? How many until your risk of disease begins to statistically climb? The whole point of this is to consider how fleeting you are and resolve to give God whatever time you have left for His glory. Here are the words of Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know that he wrote a a lengthy list of resolutions in which he committed to himself the kind of Christian man that he was going to be. I'd encourage you to go online and find the resolutions. Um, They're all over. You can find PDFs of them. I know Desiring God has a full-length list of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Here's his first resolution, and it fits perfectly with our text today. He says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. To do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and however great or severe. Amen. That's the kind of resolved Christianity that is weaponized Christianity, that is ready to fight no matter what it faces. We're not to live for the lusts of men. Look again at what Peter says in verse 2. Not for the lusts of men. When you start to think this way, when you start to think in terms of a resolved Christendom, you just don't have time for the works of the flesh anymore. We're going to talk about these in some detail in the weeks to come. Peter's going to address many of them. But for today, I ask you each, is there something in your life right now that you are pursuing, be it small or great, that has a controlling influence or power over you? It could be something as small as a cup of coffee in the evening or that beer you have to have with dinner time. Is it finding a mate? Is it finding a deal on Marketplace or at the thrift store? Is it getting the home together or doing home remodels or repairs and neglecting the kids while you're at it? Is it finishing answering those last few text messages even though it's right in the middle of dinner time? Is it, have, is it that you have to have music playing or I need time to be by myself and I don't need anyone talking. Please everyone get away from me. Will you resolve today before God to break These things, they're controlling power in your life. And then will you tell someone about it? Tell someone that you have resolved to not suffer this sin any longer, that you are going to fight it, that you are going to be victorious. But what are we living for? We're to live for God's will, Peter says. What even is God's will? Let me give you three encouragements to finding God's will. First, These are so plain. Read your Bible. You personally. It is shameful and an embarrassment that any Christian who is not otherwise providentially hindered cannot pick up his or her Bible each day and read and meditate on the Word of God. I don't mean this to be a guilt trip. This is why Christ the King has created an app with a Bible reading plan to put the food right in front of you. We consider this a hospitality ministry. You can be one of those children who refuses 
to eat the food that's set in front of you. But your new life in Christ won't run very long without it. And you will not find out God's will without seeking Him in the Word. The second thing I would encourage you to do is take some notes on what you read. Think about or consider journaling. As you study the Word and meditate, you will likely sense God's leaning. I mentioned in weeks past this idea of Lexio Divina, and essentially what I mean by that is just considering what the Spirit is saying as you read the text. I will admit there is a darker, hyper-introspective side to that that is not helpful, and I would encourage you to avoid that. But as you sense things that God is leading you to do personally or with your family, write them down in a journal so you can be resolved to keep them. Lastly, and I mentioned several weeks ago about creating a family mission statement. This is not a new fundamentalism, but a tool for helping you wisely use your remaining time in the flesh for the will of God. These are things that will help your family think kingdom and also think local. It is meant to restrict you in a way that keeps you plodding away at the things that you need to be about. My friend Ed Rosen says, that if you aim at nothing, you're bound to hit it. And I think he's right. Remember, resolved Christianity is the weaponized Christianity. Lastly, I would encourage you, especially fathers in this room, but also mothers and young children even, who have considered Christ and placed your faith and trust in Him, get out in the world and start telling the world about Jesus. And be prepared to suffer for Him. Put your neck out there for Christ. And watch how it encourages you to be done with sin. To say, I don't have time for this anymore. I'm going to live for Jesus from here on out. Beloved, there isn't a lot the world can do against a Christian who, depending not on their feelings, but on sticking to their word, that kind of Christian who walks the Calvary road day in and day out just as Jesus did, carrying his cross to follow after Jesus. There's not a lot the world can do against that kind of Christianity. These kinds of people just don't have time for sin anymore. Outside of Scripture, I can't think of a place where this is more profoundly stated than in Lewis's screw tape letters. In them, Demon Screwtape is instructing his young devil nephew, Wormwood about the peaks and troughs in human life and how to take advantage of them for the Dark Lord. In urging his young trainee to take advantage of both the mountaintop seasons and the valleys, he leaves him with a warning. He says the enemy, which by that he means God, uses the valleys as his means of growing the little urchins into the kind of creatures that he actually wants them to be. At the end of this letter, Screwtape gives Wormwood this final warning. He says, Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks, why has he been forsaken? And then still obeys.
resolved Christianity is weaponized Christianity. Are you going to resolve today to follow Jesus? Then together, let's take up our crosses and follow him. Let's pray. Father, would you give us strength to do what your word commands? You have shown us what your will is. Now give us the power by your spirit to do it, that we might take up those crosses as Jesus asked us to, that we might follow in his steps, that we might make a clean break with sin. Lord, we know we did this when we repented and put our faith in you, but there is something significant about the moment when a child grows up, is mature, and begins to act like an adult. And I pray that our Christianity would be that kind of mature Christianity, the kind that puts its hand to the plow and never looks back, the kind that enlists itself in your military service and begins to seek to please the one who enlisted us. Please give us that kind of fortitude and that kind of strength. May we stick together as a church, as a band of brothers and sisters who is resolved to move forward in this way. And please, mortify our sin. We believe that you will because you promised it so. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.